0: Hello and welcome to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Our guest, Rue Hale, joins me today. Artist, organizer, and agitator greets you when you log on to Rue's website. San Francisco native and Portland, Oregon resident, Rue is a queer activist, dancer, and tattoo artist who also co-owns Portland's Ori Gallery, spelled O-R-I, with Maya Vibas. Rue Hale will share how they use their talent and visions to create a more inclusive world for the lgbtq plus community welcome
1: thanks for having me
0: thank you so much for joining me i thank you for giving me space within your schedule to do this i'm really looking forward to it
1: listen i really love making time for black and brown interviewers when i can
0: <laughs> oh gosh well i thank you <laughs>
1: honestly it's really important to me um ever since Maya and I started the gallery we've noticed that like when we're interviewed by white folks most often like our words will just get twisted they'll focus on all the wrong things and we're just like it's a mess I appreciate the time and energy getting to talk to my people
0: yeah we need our voices uh as unfiltered as possible out there and authentic of course too (laughs) so how are you
1: Ah, I'm good. I'm really busy. I'm a little exhausted. We just got our emergency mask mandate reissued or whatever you call it. So, you know, things are fluctuating with how COVID is affecting Portland right now, but I'm excited. I'm in revolutionary spirits. I have some really exciting meetings with local artists to talk about like upcoming projects and, you know, what we want for our communities. I'm jazzed.
0: I like that term revolutionary spirits. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's the only thing that's really keeping me hopeful with the barrage of terrible news that we get every single day. I feel like, you know, the spirit of revolution is the thing that keeps me going.
0: That's important. When you say uh, emergency masks, what do you mean? Is that like all the time or just when you walk into like stores and things like that?
1: They just gave like those, you know, citywide emergency management system messages. Like we just got one of those yesterday because the mask mandate is restarting in Oregon.
0: I've been in Europe now for almost two years, but been in the UK now for a few months again. But we just got everything lifted, but they're still kind of confused on what to do with the masks. Right now they're saying it's suggested. (laughs) Like
1: especially being a tattoo artist, being close to people's open wounds all the time, I'm keeping a mask on. Like, (laughs) I'm cool.
0: (laughs) We still got to focus on our health. Yeah, we have to make sure that as many people as possible are protected.
1: I've had several friends, um, all people of color, who have been yelled at in public by strangers for having their masks on, just minding their own business.
0: Having them on.
1: Yeah, like people are like, take your mask off. And I'm like, wow. People just have this entitlement over other people's bodies, especially if they're brown or black or like crippled or whatever, you know, like people just take liberties thinking that they know what is best for your bodies. Oh, and I guess I should say that I use crippled as a reclaimed term. I identify as someone with several disabilities, uh, especially pertaining to like legs and movement and mobility. Just so listeners know, like that's an intercommunity term.
0: I was just thinking when you were describing how these people are, you know, saying those things, it's a reminder that policing our bodies goes beyond to when we're driving or when we're in a moving vehicle.
1: It's wild the entitlement that people have over black and brown bodies. Like, shout out to Simone for taking her time. Simone and Nike.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard that earlier today.
1: Blessings to those girls. Like, blessings, blessings, because our, like, rest as Black and Brown folks is absolutely revolutionary. Taking a nap might be the most radical thing (laughs) my Black ass can do on any given day.
0: Yeah. You know, I've been saying that this younger generation is helping me to voice more that this is affecting my emotional and mental well-being more than anything. I know that people, especially what, what happened last year with George Floyd and several other people, their murders were publicized. You know, the first thing people say was, are you angry? And it's like, one, I don't like that. You're telling me how I'm feeling. And two, you default to angry because I think it's easier to judge that emotion as opposed to letting me one, define how I feel. And two, that there's a lot of sadness connected to all of this too.
1: That always strikes me so deeply that people have this really 2D or like very flat static view of black emotion. Mm. Like they don't know what we're doing unless we're laughing or angry. Like a couple of years ago, the gallery hosted a screening of Moonlight that was like just for black and brown folks, right? Cause we were like, let's have an insular audience and let's enjoy this without the white gaze. And one of our assistants at the time was like, yeah, I was looking at reviews on Amazon for the movie and people were like, oh, it's boring, nothing happens. And just like that singular, like Amazon review of that movie just really shouldn't hold any weight for me as an artist, but it broke me a little bit. People really watched that whole movie and thought that nothing happened. And that really just illustrated very clearly that people don't understand the depth of Black emotion. (laughs) They just don't.
0: You said something so brilliant anger or laughter if that's not there then who are you
1: if we're not entertaining then we're not real the joy of entertainment or the suffering of black death there's no space in between that for us to just exist and just be i really like to say like let black folks be mediocre let me just like be fucking average like white people get to be let us like relax and just enjoy shit
0: Yeah, especially with our media representation, even in films, I've said more than once that a revolutionary film for Black people or about Black people would be people going to work, going to the grocery store, you know, laughing, enjoying time with their loved ones. To me, that would be a revolutionary film.
1: Right? Like, I think that's why Girlfriends was really revolutionary. (laughs) 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 Because it has four Black women just fucking having fun. And like, yeah, it's still like tied around men a little bit, but at least they're just being like silly, like, like let black people be silly. Africans are just too fucking amazing for y'all to like dumb us down to like this two dimensional static bullshit.
0: Right, right.
1: There's just so much more. And like, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, you know, shepherd this hub for black and brown artists because I get to truly immerse myself in ways that I wasn't allowed to growing up truly just like sit in awe of how many ways there are to be a nigga. Like, (laughs) 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 Like,
0: it's
1: just fucking beautiful. I would just wish that for everybody. Like every time I meet someone new who is, you know new to the scene in Portland or whatever, I'm just like, okay, you know, what are your disciplines? Who can I get you hooked up with? These are the organizations you need to touch base with. I don't want anyone to go through what I went through. Starving for lack creative space. Adulation, you know, financial support, all of those things. I'm trying to do the like lift as we climb and make sure that whoever's coming in after me doesn't have to trip like I tripped, you know.
0: Well, great to hear that. And thank you. I have a cousin who lived in Portland in the early 90s. We're from Arizona. So there's some similarities in there. There's not like a large black population, like say Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. But to hear, you know, that you're using your platform to uplift and celebrate other you know black or brown people is great to hear but just sitting here right now and looking at you i just love your energy and i love that when i found you online tattoo artists you know that's one of your several um professional monikers and it made me think when i think of tattoo artists i don't know of any black tattoo artists who are celebrated or who are famous so to hear that you're doing that i was just intrigued Yeah, it really was.
1: I don't feel like I can talk about my work without giving a shout out to Ink the Diaspora. Tan Parker is just like an amazing Black femme. I believe that this project just started out as an Instagram account that was just like celebrating Black tattoo artists. You know, they were struggling finding Black tattoo artists who knew how to tattoo melanated skin. And, you know, like many folks seeking ink, they were told by several white tattoo artists that they couldn't be tattooed. Really? Many of us have the experience of being told that we're too dark to be tattooed, which is bonkers cuckoo bananas because act like there aren't like tons of Africans who haven't been tattooing each other for millennia, you know, like tattooing is a very like indigenous practice, like globally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So like, don't tell me that you can't tattoo melanated skin because we invented this shit. So yeah, that blog was really, really great at helping me like not only connect with other black tattoo artists, but really create that wide network of support as well as like refer folks and like, you know, every time someone's like, Oh, I don't know where to find an artist. I'm just like, boom, boom, boom. There you go. We're like building these networks for each other where in spaces that they don't exist. I'm not the only one doing the thing, you know, like there's so many beautiful folks doing this work.
0: I'll definitely look them up. Um, How long have you been a tattoo artist?
1: Oh gosh. I got my license in 2012. Almost 10 years now. I get down on myself a lot. Because of the barriers in the industry, you know, I feel like I'm not as accomplished a tattoo artist as I could be, and I feel like a lot of folks feel that way because it takes so long to break into this industry, mm-hmm. especially if you're working in a primarily white city. You know, I just try to give myself that levity and that um, that grace that I feel artists of color we don't often give ourselves.
0: That thing that I know I heard growing up is we have to work twice as hard, which means I think we're never really enjoying our successes
1: right? We get compared to spare because we are constantly like holding ourselves up to the standard of white supremacy. And that takes a lifetime to unpack.
2: Mm, Yeah.
1: Really don't give ourselves the grace to say like, oh yeah, I played myself and that was white supremacy's fault, not my fault. I did play myself and I'm allowed to give myself that grace and be better moving forward, you know?
0: So what sparked your interest in becoming a tattoo artist? (sighs)
1: okay if I'm going to be really honest about it and not be deep I saw Foxfire at a very transformative time in my life it's like part of my gay root is like you know a bunch of babes pushing back against authority and like tattooing each other in the woods that was probably like my impetus as like you know a young gay you know put that one on Jenny Shimizu (laughs) (laughs) Um, but later on in life I saw an artist's work who had done this really beautiful floral piece on someone who had gotten a double mastectomy. And I was just like, wow, this beautiful moment of reclamation of your own body after this like traumatic incident. I have to be a part of that. I have to steward that that was struck that deep well in my body. That was just like, okay, I have to do this. The impetus was really has always been healing and connection and um, compersion I don't know. It's very tangible for me. It's real. It's happening in front of me. It's not abstract.
0: Now you're originally from San Francisco. Now, did you develop this passion while you were there?
1: Um, I was born and raised in San Francisco and Santa Cruz. Um, so I'm very much like a Bay Area, California kid. Mm-hmm. And like I just have a very artistic family. My grandfather was a painter, really heavy into acrylics. All of my aunts and uncles are artistic in some way, shape or fashion. So it just kind of like was always there. It was just like the creativity, the the access to creative process was just always there in my life. Um, I just felt it was kind of natural. I was like, yeah, everyone's an artist. Why wouldn't I just be an artist?
0: So in becoming a tattoo artist, is there like an apprentice program or is there like formal training? How do you go about, you know, dipping your toe into the industry?
1: Um, honestly a very state by state according to like what your laws are in Oregon you have to go to school in and of itself you know that institutions based in white supremacy aren't exactly getting us where we need to go you know so that that's its own process I went to a very racist institution in Portland and I recently spoke to a current student who's in that same institution who was like yeah it's still bullshit but things are changing and people are working to make it different so Really, no matter what angle you come at it, there are going to be different barriers to get through. I think that like, you know, folks who have to go through an apprenticeship, you really have to spend your time building relationship in industry, right? You have to get to know artists. You have to spend a lot of time hanging around and just like, you know, kind of sucking whose dick you can to get access, right? If I'm going to be blunt about it, you have to make a lot of compromises sometimes to get access into the good old boys you know and I feel like a lot of that is changing because black and brown artists who do have access are like fuck this shit we need to change it and folks are doing that work but um, yeah it takes tenacity wherever you're at and you know I think relationship building is really the key to whatever industry you're in it's always about who you know
0: it's interesting to hear your experiences and being a, a Black queer person in the tattoo industry, because it's no different than, of course, we know it's the same in, you know, media and Hollywood and those places. Yeah, I'll be honest, it's kind of surprising to hear, you know, within that industry, which presents itself as counterculture and, you know, we rebels, or at least that's been my perception of it. It's interesting to hear that it's just the same way there.
1: Honestly, that's why I always say that, like, everyone has a place in the revolution. White supremacy doesn't stop at graphic design or ceramics or tattooing, you know? Like, and <laughs> it's, like, it's just wild how, how niche it gets, right? Like white supremacy is so nebulous. It's able to change its form all the time to do its job, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, my co-director Maya and like everything that they've had to go through being a ceramicist and like how white supremacy shows up there.
0: You know, you mentioned about like hearing or being told that, you know, Black people can't get tattoos. Is that where you started to hear that when you started to train?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. The school that I was in, I had like textbooks that were like, you can't tattoo Black skin. Literally. Like straight up. They were just like, you'll have to have this conversation with the client. (laughs) Meanwhile, my Black tattooed ass is like, what? (laughs) Like, who? (laughs) (laughs) Like, how is this real? How are y'all just getting away
0: with this? Wow
1: yeah it's cuckoo bananas if you're a black person who has ever been told you can't be tattooed that's just a shitty tattoo artist straight up like just say that you can't tattoo black skin and go i would argue that like one of the best tattoo artists on the planet is a black femme like maria lupini Mm -hmm. and like does amazing fucking work that bitch has a contract with bic with like bic pens like she has like bic tattoo markers you can't tell me that she's not in her bag her portfolio is filled with amazing full-color work on dark-ass skin.
0: Okay, I'm, I'm kind of like absorbing this right now. <laughs>
1: there has to be like a word in French or something for that feeling that you get when you discover something new and racist. That ancestral heaviness that you feel in your chest and you're like, damn, I'm not surprised, but it still sucks.
0: That's it. You describe it perfectly. Like I'm not surprised, but I am. That tightrope that we we have to live on a daily basis.
1: It's like a negative term for awe. I'm amazed at how shitty that is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) True. Yeah. Wow. So with training to become a tattoo artist, um, how long does that take? A lifetime. So it's just like any artistic community. You're always learning.
1: I'm constantly learning. And like, I don't believe anyone who says that they're done learning anything ever.
0: So when you get out into the professional world, do you automatically go and look for employment, like with an established tattoo parlor? How does that work?
1: A a lot of the shops that I applied to, I was like, okay, I'll see what it's like. And I tried it for a while. And one of the shops I worked at, I was accused of stealing on a day I wasn't there.
0: (laughs) Wow. Just letting you know, you're not welcome.
1: And like, they realized their mistake and then begged me not to say anything on social media and like experiences like that are not uncommon, like over and over again. You know, I will shout out that, you know, I have had like a couple of mentors, all of whom were women Mm -hmm. who really shaped the way that I stepped into the industry and provided more of a safe harbor than I would have had. And I'm forever grateful. I had an independent practice for five years. I was just like, fuck it. I have a private space because I don't want to deal with, you know, my client's they're crippled, they're Black, (laughs) like they're people who are pushed into the margins of this industry and whose bodies are constantly under threat of violence.
2: Mm.
1: Like I'm trying to build a healing practice, you know, I'm not about to expose them to that. So like I recently joined a shop, I'm now with Constellation Tattoo Mm. and it took my entire career to find a shop where I truly felt like my clients were safe.
0: I love the way you speak. And I don't know if you're a writer, but I'm like, you've said so many nuggets to me and quotes. Of course, I'm going to hear the recording when I edit, but I'm like, oh, I should be writing this down.
1: (laughs) Honestly, I wish. My neurodivergency makes it very, very, very difficult for me to put together cohesive sentences on paper. (laughs) If I had a professional dictator, that would be the shit. I'm very thankful that I have a partner who has those skills and who's willing to lend them to me often. That's a a creative hurdle that I, I hope to overcome soon.
0: You talked about like mentors, women in the industry who were supportive to you. How is it being a part of the queer community within the tattoo industry? Is there a network or a community within that community that is supportive regardless of race or is it just across the board?
1: When you ask me this question, it brings up feelings of division within the queer community outside of tattooing i'm just like well i'd rather hang out with black queer folks than white queer folks for all the reasons that we don't need to name in this space right um and i feel like it's often the same thing there are good folks and there are bad folks there are folks who are working on their shit and there are folks who still have a lot of reading to do right but that being said you know like we want to find solidarity where we can and <laughs> that's kind of the name of the game is that like you know i will Like any black person, I'll keep you at an arm's length and like, watch what comes out in the sauce because your actions are going to speak louder than your words. Just like anything, a lot of people, you know, they slap that little progressive pride sticker on there and they think they've checked that box. And I'm like, nah, y'all still got a lot of anti-blackness that you are not acknowledging. And I don't think people really think about that.
0: Or stop asking those of us who are on the receiving end of prejudices of racism, And look at yourself first and look at the communities that you come from, because I've been in a headspace again of, I don't want to be asked or interviewed about what it's like to deal with racism, because that's not the solution.
1: No, y'all know. You know what it's like. Stop asking. Cinema has existed for a hundred years and we've been around for all of it. Like there's not a thousand books on the subject, a thousand scholarly articles that you haven't read, like quit asking us dumb shit you already know. Like, y'all love Black death and pain so much. That consumptive nature of whiteness as an identity, that entitlement to our pain, our processes, this, that, and the other thing, like, just quit. There's so much history for you to be absorbing. We make so much that's not related to our pain, believe it or not, anyway.
0: No, no, I I agree. I think of movies that, you know, I know we love, that are huge successes that we know about, but you ask a non-Black person and they're like, oh, I never heard of that film. When did it come out? That's <laughs> like, cause it's a happy film. Uh, like you said, uplifting.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I feel like one of the most beautiful examples of the praxis of Gen Z or like, you know, Gen Z millennial space is, I don't know if you've watched any of Z-Way? No. Oh my God. Y'all listening, like go watch her, check her out. She has a show on Showtime, but she came up through social media and the way that she does satire, like she understands the project, <laughs> like she understands the assignment, right? And yeah, the way that she plays with that white ignorance is so funny. Like this one specific instance I'm thinking of, she is quizzing white people on their knowledge of the Black National Anthem. And one of them is like, you're trolling me. That's a joke. That doesn't exist. There are so many moments like that. And I'm just like, this is so beautiful. The fact that Showtime even is allowing this to happen. It's beautiful. It's art.
0: Z-Way. Okay. I'll definitely have to look her up. Yeah. So what was it like for you growing up in San Francisco?
1: I have to say like most of my, my consciousness like happened in Santa Cruz we had this move from San Francisco to Santa Cruz where I like really discovered my blackness at a young age and didn't really comprehend it. But all I knew was like, all of a sudden I wasn't surrounded with people who looked like me because San Francisco was so much more ethnically diverse than Santa Cruz, right? The awakening of my blackness came through, I guess the discovery of its absence. I was also like raised by a white cop. It was my stepfather that really shaped for better or worse, my like sense of blackness and like my pride in my blackness. I'm still doing a lot of healing to this day.
0: Can I ask what you mean by that with having a stepfather who is a police officer?
1: That man is anti-black as fuck. He's like one of those people who thinks by like having a light-skinned wife and a black stepdaughter that he is absolved of his anti-blackness and racism. And it's like, nah, like, Black pussy is magic, but it's not that magic, right? <laughs> it can only do so much. And yeah, it took me so long to realize he had been feeding me like lies and misinformation that had like truly warped my psyche and like how I thought about myself and other Black people. Mm. It took a lot of time and I think humility to come into my Blackness. And yeah, I think it's something that's very in line with Black American identity. Yeah, there's this weird Stockholm, like, kidnapping thing that happens, right? Where you have to come out of that. You have to, like, mm-hmm. deprogram yourself. I probably did a lot of damage to other Black people. I know I did a lot of damage to other Black people because of my internalized anti-Blackness. And, you know, we see this coonery all around where folks are still stuck in the sunken place. But it's hard when you grow up in the sunken place because <laughs> you don't even know that you're there, right? So, like, that awakening right. is, you know, an extra sort of mind fuck. And I think that's, like, why I'm so militant now, Is that like, there's so much work to undo.
0: I I hear being brave enough to say, I need to look at myself. I know that racism exists outside of me, but you know, what do I need to unpack that I've inherited or I've taken on that has harmed me and those who look like me?
1: My biggest takeaway is like watching someone who had more power and more authority than me be wrong and be wrong graciously was something that like really struck me and was like a really huge part of my like child self healing was like (laughs) the grownups were never wrong. Right. And their omnipotency is often reinforced through physical punishment, especially like, you know, within the black community, that's something like black Americans really got to work on is that, you know, we internalize that abuse a lot in our community and we don't give ourselves space to be like, no, what our parents did was not okay. They were traumatized and they passed that trauma onto us, but it stops that generational trauma stops with me.
0: The laws that are enacted to, you know, quote unquote, change things around racism are important, but the bigger thing is the socialization.
1: Right. Killing the colonist inside your head. Uh,
0: That's another good one. (laughs) So you grew up in San Francisco and Santa Cruz. How did you transition to Portland?
1: Um, Well, after Santa Cruz, um, after the dot-com boom, my family moved to Florida. So we were in Boca Raton for like two years, but I just need to get the fuck out of Florida before it kills me. So I went to the first college that would accept me in Boston and then bounced around a little bit. And I actually like moved to Seattle first with a partner because I was like, I need to get the fuck away from my parents. (laughs) And this relationship is the way out, Right. And then I, I ended up getting accepted to PNCA and moved to Portland. And I've been here ever since.
0: What's PNCA?
1: Uh, the Pacific Northwest College of Arts, uh, another institution that uh, ran me through the ringer of anti-Blackness and classism, you know, that I would say that they're, they're working on their ship.
0: You know, your experiences about, you know, Portland, I've heard it about Portland and also Seattle. Um Uh, There's someone I'd like to, if it's okay to forward you, she's a scholar who really opened my awareness of things in Portland, and and even with how they were, I think, the only state that had on their books, their legal books, that they didn't want Black people in the state, so. Is it Walida? I think so. She's got.
1: Yeah, the big Afro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has a course called Why Aren't There More Black People in Oregon? yeah yeah yeah. yeah. and she gave that course to a black leadership cohort that I was a part of way back way back like maybe 2013 or something she was the person who I don't know if this is her quote I don't want to misquote her but she introduced me to this quote if it is not hers that social justice is science fiction because we're dreaming of worlds that have never existed (laughs) and that like really stuck with me and I was like damn yeah the power of imagination is so fucking important in this movement they don't want us imagining they don't want us dreaming One of my other favorite quotes is that art is our most important tool for disrupting the dominant hegemony. Mm. That's the power of art. That's what it does. That's like, we're creative creatures. We're supposed to be making things and like communicating to each other in these beautifully complex ways. And, you know, I feel like art cuts to the quick. You're not going to radicalize someone with an essay. You're just not (laughs) like, you're not going to radicalize someone with a book. You're just not like reading is hard. It takes a lot of time and capitalism doesn't give us space for that. So like art is the way, not that books aren't art. Let me back up before my literary artists come at me. But it is a a harder way to engage with people. And like a lot of it is ableist and like not super accessible to people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where like things like poetry really come in because it's an easily digestible way for folks to to get access to it. You know, who might not sit down and read an entire book on Marxist theory or whatever, they might read a poem. That's where I feel like um, art really needs to like Swell up and take its place in the revolution and really push.
0: Yeah. And and what you share reinforces that art is society and it's the galleries, which I'll ask you about your own gallery, but it's the galleries that we visit because that's the history. A lot of the history that's left behind is through the art. I've been here, like I said, in Europe now for almost two years. And what it's reinforced for me is that art is very, very Eurocentric (laughs) throughout the world. You know, I, I hear sometimes words on the radio about, you know, world renown and all this stuff, but I'm like, but are you comparing it to the art throughout the world or just then the continent of Europe?
1: Oh my God. Yes. I'm not going to go off on a whole PhD tangent, but just the history, the deep, rich, juicy ass history. There are no words to describe the chasm of missing African artwork. The more I deep, the more I'm just like, damn, we are just fucking amazing the ancient like realism present in Africa there there isn't a a corner of art you can look at where we are not just everything The, the opportunity and the honor to give us our own flowers to like give flowers to folks who are still here and still doing the thing and present it's a fucking honor there's nothing else I would rather be doing
0: on your bio on your website you mentioned that you're a dancer too so what type of dancer i don't know if genre is the right word
1: i always have a really hard time answering this question because like i'm a club kid <laughs> like, i learned to dance because i was sneaking out of the house to clubs to like go express myself because i didn't have access to dance i didn't have access to the resources to tell the stories that were in my body even if my parents had the money they weren't spending that on dance you know like before I got diabetes, I was a fat kid. So like, and we know that like fat kids can't dance according to like mainstream society. So they weren't about to put money into that for me, you know, like I wasn't considered graceful a dancer. So that's how I did. I snuck around and then like when I got older and was able to get into the clubs on my own, I needed money. So like I was up on that stage dancing. And like, I think the only reason I didn't become a stripper is because I was too dark. I wasn't desired in a way that was profitable as it was for others you know I'll say like I didn't have the grit like a lot of these girls do but like that's you know why I have so much compersion and solidarity with sex workers because I get the grift right it's work and a lot of folks come through that in like a survival mode some folks come through it through passion but you know I see that solidarity because there's just like so much similarity in like the paths that I took Mm -hmm. to get to where I am you know but yeah, so when people ask me, like, what kind of dancer are you? You're like, I don't know. I'm a go-go dancer. Like, I was developed according to my audience. I developed the dance moves that got me money. I developed the stamina that paid my bills.
0: I said in the intro, you know, queer, but I didn't give you the uh, space to say, how do you identify under the umbrella of LGBTQ plus?
1: Honestly, like. I feel like I've been an activist for so long and I've been like tearing apart queer theory for so long that the more I dig deep, the more I'm just like, fuck a label. I'm so tired. <laughs> like, I'm just tired of, you know, if you get it, you get it. If you're on the vibe, you're on the vibe. And like, I don't really care about what's between your legs. It's like, what's up here? Like where your principles are. Mm-hmm. I want to make it very clear that I staunchly reject things like sapiosexual. I feel like that is ableist as fuck.
0: I, I don't know that term.
1: A sapiosexual is this identity, I'm trying not to fuck it up, it's basically folks who are attracted to intelligence, like high levels of intelligence, which doesn't make any sense because what kind of intelligence are you talking about, right? There's like at least seven different types of intelligence that we've identified and that doesn't describe any of them. And it's also like incredibly subjective, (laughs) like I can't get started on how like ableist and just really shitty that identity is. Hmm. Y'all come at me on social media if you want to, I will ignore it. <laughs> but yeah, it's like I will say queer in that queer in its core just means different or odd or non normal or surprising. And like, I guess that fits. Okay. I feel like the terms to describe my gender and sexuality were lost in the middle of the passage, if we're going to be honest about it. There's this gap between like non binary identity between black and brown folks and white folks. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's largely because the binary is a tool of white supremacy, right? These motherfuckers got to Africa and they were like, wow, we can't distinguish between what is men and what is women in our minds. So y'all just some like crazy animals who don't really have genders. So we're just going to like tightly fit you into these boxes that make us comfortable. Mm. Like that is the story of the gender binary literally. Knowing that, seeing, like, white folks come back and be like, oh, I don't identify within the binary. It's like, nigga, you're responsible for it. You built this. (laughs) Like, we were chilling with our infinite amount of unnameable genders and sexualities. We were literally just chilling. Y'all brought this upon yourselves and us. That's the conversation that is in my body. So, like, I don't know that I can define it any clearer, you know?
0: Okay. When did you become aware of this part of yourself?
1: I mean... feel like always right like you know that human identity begins to develop at like what age five four somewhere in that like when we become self-aware and I feel like trans identity is like largely a process of elimination right we have all these things forced upon us to be like this is what makes you a man this is what makes you a woman and there's nothing outside of this and you're like oh that doesn't fit this doesn't fit that feels weird I hate this this is itchy until you're like oh okay I feel like I finally found a place where things are good I may be losing sight of your original question. But...
0: No, no. You're the second person I've talked to where I'm thinking about myself. And especially most likely a generation I have you.
1: How old do you think I... Uh,
0: I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm 37. I'm older. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You know, black don't crack. I'm like... <laughs> you know,
0: I always say it could be the melanin. I think it's the lotion that we get slatted on us from the moment we're born. <laughs> Other groups, they start moisturizing when they see the wrinkles. It's like, we've already got that covered.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Listen, this is a lifestyle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, your mother, oh, get back here. <laughs> I'm 51. So I don't usually say that a lot, but <laughs> <laughs> I always say I don't lie, but I don't volunteer.
1: <laughs> Listen, children need to know. They need to see their elders out here thriving. <laughs>
0: oh, that's true. You're right. Yeah. Okay. And that's my own ageism like internalized homophobia ah more food for thought for me yeah
1: honestly like getting back to what you said before about you know questioning yourself i think that's so beautiful and that's actually something like i i work for the city of portland as part of my like big boy day job Mm -hmm. and you know part of my work is doing training and like internally in the city and that's kind of what i've been trying to push is cis folks really need to ask yourselves what makes you a man how do you know right is it tied to your genitalia? Because that might be a problem. That might be something you need to investigate. If you're out here claiming to be a whole ass woman and the only thing that you can tie to your womanhood is a womb and a vagina, girl, <laughs> that doesn't sound very feminist to me. So I think it's like a really, really healthy and necessary thing for cisgender folks to really question like, you know, what makes you your gender? You should note yourself that deeply.
0: Our parents doesn't determine that either. Truly. I'm not religious you hear people say, oh, well, men are supposed to wear pants and women are supposed to wear dresses. And my little overthinking mind as a kid, I'd be like, well, Jesus didn't wear pants. so It's a fact.
1: Listen, (laughs) I have never in my life seen a picture of Jesus Christ in pants. (laughs) (laughs) These fundamental Christians are wild out of here being like,
0: Or how that changes, how it's uh, indicative of the time period. Like, say, you know, how women are policed with what they wear. A woman's supposed to wear, you know, below the knee. It's like, well, at one point it was below the ankles because ankles were considered risque. So, I mean, come on. All that to say what you were just sharing just reinforces for myself that, one, I'm not too old to look at how I consciously present myself to the world and why I'm doing it.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: So let's talk about your art gallery, Ori Gallery. How did that come about with your co-owner, Maya Vibas?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, we were, you know, basically sick of not having space and like being billed as the black blank wherever we were. When we wanted to create a space where artists could just be themselves and not be tokenized Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or filtered or put in a weird context. And we really wanted to create a space where we gave folks the support that was necessary for the artistic freedom that they're striving for. It could look like providing monetary support, providing volunteer support for install, providing space for art talks and lectures, you know, whatever they want the programming around their time with us to look like. And it's been so beautiful just to like, you know, see what folks are able to do and to really watch the catalyst of what happens when you just throw money and time and resources at Black and Brown folks. It's just beautiful. You know, and right now we're in a place where we're onboarding new staff. We're stepping back and kind of taking, you know, a board position and really allowing the next ideation of what Ori is to come into fruition. We started work in 2017. So that really means that we're about to hit our like five-year anniversary. That's really exciting. I didn't even think about that because it's been like such a, a whirlwind, you know, just trying to like get the thing done and move on. I'm really feeling great about the place that we're in and like about the amount of support and foundational infrastructure that we've been able to create for these folks who are stepping in. Especially like, you know, with my experience in the nonprofit industrial complex, I'm really, really trying hard to not recreate harm. I'm excited about what it's going to be in the future. You know, folks are really thinking deeply about You know, it's a different world than we started in. Like, what do exhibitions look like right now? What does an art show look like right now safely? You know, especially as you've got this new mask mandate up, we're not out of the thick of it by any means. What does collaborating with, you know, mutual aid projects look like? What does collaborating with other Black and brown artists who want to start their own galleries, right? Like, we don't want to be the only one. We want to be able to say, like, you know, take our Google Drive and run with it take everything that we've learned and do something even better. Like I want there to be five Ori's by the time I move out of Portland. Yeah. <laughs> um, we deserve that. We deserve our own museum, right? There needs yeah. to be a, a center for black arts in Portland. I want to create the resources for other folks to do that. You know,
0: There's one more person I will connect you with here in the UK, who I think would be a good connection for you. Beautiful. Um, so what does Ori mean?
1: Ori, uh, we took from the Yoruba word for head, which is a derivative of the word orisha, which is like, I don't want to call them gods or goddesses, but, you know, the beings of power (laughs) that are recognized within the Yoruba faith. It also describes the decorative facial practice of Ori.
0: And Yoruba is Nigerian.
1: Yes, Yes. You know, we wanted to keep it black as fuck and we wanted to honor like the significance of the creative process. It is holy. It is spiritual. It is sacrosanct. And we feel it's really integral to African identity. Yes, Africans make beautiful things. We are creative. It's an integral part of our identity. It's a part of our spirituality. Hmm. It's a demonstration of our connection to the divine. You know, that's the center of our magic. That is our connection to those beings above us, right? Those Orishas.
2: Okay.
1: We fumbled with it for a really long time because we were like, is it possible for us as American Blacks to appropriate African culture? We went through so much um, unpacking our own internalized anti-Blackness to try to, you know, come to a place that just felt good. You know, it felt right. It didn't feel like we were being exploitative or, you know, marketing is dirty. Marketing feels weird. Branding feels weird. You know, that's so integral to capitalism. Like, are we doing this right? How are we presenting ourselves to community? What message are we putting forth? So yeah, those are just the kind of things that came out of like that process of naming the gallery.
0: Well, it's great that you, again, gave yourself permission to go through that own process of saying, I want to make sure that in connecting to this culture that I'm not appropriating, even though, yeah, we are quote unquote Black, but I know for me, I don't have the knowledge. What I've told people here is most of us Black Americans, we don't have the knowledge, not because we don't want it. It's just because that was stripped away eons ago because they put groups together so that languages and culture were lost within a generation or two. Mm-hmm. many of us would like to return to that. And this is our way of honoring that. And this sounds like that's what you're doing.
1: And honestly, that's why I'm always, y'all need to join a revolutionary organization led by Africans. Everyone needs to do it. A of all, like throughout revolutionary history, every revolutionary leader you can think of had a connection to the homeland. They had connections with organizers there. They did that. They bridged that gap. First and foremost, that should be like a good enough reason for folks to want to connect. And like, secondly, connecting with other Africans, especially folks on the continent, is so important for unlearning all of that anti-Blackness that we have been pickled in since birth. Folks on the continent want us home. like they do. And I don't know if you heard this growing up, but there's this idea that Africans on the continent don't like Black Americans and they actually like hate us. When I tell you like the frustration and anger and sadness that Africans on the continent have expressed to me trying to undo that and being like, bitch, we know you're African. We know you're African before you do. How can you deny that we are connected in that way? They want us back. I don't think a lot of folks realize that we can get a passport now. Any member of the African diaspora, like we are now included in the African Union. All 55 African presidents voted on including the diaspora in the union. So now we have North, South, East, West, Central, and the diaspora. The fact that that is not common knowledge is...
0: I didn't know that, no.
1: And this information is hidden from us, right? I will credit African TikTok. I am just so, so very thankful for like all of the young African creators who are working so hard to... Just push us forward and push forward pan-Africanism and unity in the ways that we really need. And these young pan-Africanists who are like pushing back on the old guard on their transphobia, homophobia, and it's just so necessary. African organization is so necessary and connecting with other Black folks who have revolutionary principles is so, so very necessary.
0: Wow. Again, it's like I'm soaking it in and I'm like, I got to focus on the questions here. (laughs) Um, So how has the reception, critical and public reception, been to the art gallery?
1: I gotta say it's been all positive. I think the need for exclusively non-white artistic spaces is vacuous. There's just so much need. You know, the second we even were just like, oh, I think maybe we'll open up a gallery. People were like, oh my God, yes, when is it opening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we so much support from day one. You know, your random white supremacist on Instagram here and there, but really the support has just been so huge.
0: Oh, that's great to hear. And how has the reception been within the LGBTQ plus community outside of black and brown people?
1: It's been really interesting because you know, we have black and brown artists who aren't necessarily queer. Okay. So we've been able to really Create that space where cis Black folks and trans Black folks and queer Black folks can just be Black.
0: That's good to hear too, yeah.
1: It's so fucking beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I get a little teary thinking about it. Just how necessary that fucking space is. And I just feel like honored to be able to steward it and to be able to empower others to create that space and support people who are trying to do the same thing. Yeah, this is dope.
0: Do you have any other creative endeavors in addition to tattoo artist, dancer, and art gallery owner?
1: Um, I'm working with a group of folks right now to try to start a Black circus in Portland. Huh. Yeah, I got into aerial Silks a couple of years ago, and lo and behold, it's really hard to break into if you're not skinny and white and have a lot of access to money. So like that became another passion of mine, especially like the history of Black folks in circus. Again, its own podcast. I'm working with a couple of institutions to try and put together residency and rehearsal space and trying to bring black circus instructors that I've met from across the country um, to Portland to, you know, give folks lessons, try to build up that community. We've got some weekly meetings on board or monthly meetings on board. I'm really excited. Yeah, it's on the horizon. It's super dope.
0: You know, you're giving me, you know, I'll say my younger self, permission to dream beyond not what Black people are saying we should do, but what the media puts on us that says we should do. You are giving me, even now, but I'll say like a younger me, permission to say, I could be a tattoo artist, I could be a circus performer, I could be, you know, a dancer, I could be all these things, and just I happen to be also Black. Your image, I think, is so important and so vital.
1: You can't be what you can't see. And I feel like if I had had access to someone like me or like the mentors that I had earlier in life, things would have just been so different. And I think that's why I have so much compersion for this up and coming generation, you know, distract baby boomers and hold open all the doors so that they can come through and do what needs to be done. I've also like done a lot of youth work and that's always how I viewed my position is to like be the adult that I needed as a youth Mm. and remove as many barriers as humanly possible that I can for these young folks coming up.
0: I just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to do this. I really, really am honored and look forward to sharing your personal and professional journey with this new community that I'm creating. So uh, just thank you so much again.
1: Yeah, thank you for the time and the opportunity. Love talking to Black journalists. (laughs) (laughs) if there's other ways that we can work together in the future or other folks I can connect you with, you know, I'm all about it.
0: Now I'm going to add your links to your own website and to the art gallery, but where else can we find you online?
1: I feel like I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter these days. I have a goal that I will make a TikTok by the end (laughs) of this dance residency. Uh Very intimidating for me to try like new social media, but I'm, I'm pushing myself, but that's where you can find me
0: thank you for spending time with us if you enjoyed this episode please rate comment and subscribe share with your friends too you can also follow us on instagram at our black gay diaspora and on twitter at blk gay diaspora until next time